0: Now, you see hundreds of sticky notes from the retro. A real mess. But you organize them into five themes in just seconds.
1: Miro, I basically get back an entire hour when I use its AI tools for clustering.
0: And she's
1: done it. Join over 60 million people running actually enjoyable and actionable retros in Miro. Get your first three boards free at Miro.com. That's M I R O.com. Save big on brunch for mom. All in the Kroger app.
0: Hey, what's up Unbroken Nation, hope that you're doing well wherever you are in the world today. Today's episode is going to be a little different than usual. In kind of the celebration of now eclipsing the 100 episode marker and over 150,000 downloads and finding out just recently that the show is in the top 1.5% of all podcasts on planet Earth, which made me super excited. I knew that I had to just take a moment here first and foremost and say thank you so much for listening, for sharing, for commenting, for when you leave the reviews on iTunes, it means the world. But with this many episodes in, it made me realize, you know what, there are probably some of you people, amazing human beings in the unbroken nation who have really kind of no idea who I am. And I thought to myself, well, what can I do here? I would love to share my backstory with you. And so what I'm going to include in today's episode is actually the preface To my book, Think Unbroken Understanding and Overcoming Childhood Trauma. This is a dive into my background, my story, my journey, and what's led me to where I am today. And the reason I want to include that is so that you can understand something really important. You are not alone in this journey, we are in this together. I've very likely been where you are, I've been at rock bottom, I've been in this position where I grew up homeless and in poverty and struggled and felled out of school and got really deep into drugs and alcohol and sex and all the addictions that you can think of and found myself at rock bottom when I put a gun in my mouth. And so let me tell you this. I believe that we all are capable of healing. We all are capable of growing. We all are capable of changing and doing the thing that I always say is possible, becoming the hero of our own story. Now, that journey is not always easy. I'll be the first one to admit that, but I do know that it is possible, especially with support. And so the reason why I wanted to share the preface of the book with you and the background of my life story was just so that we could have some connection together. So as we head forward and to the next hundred episodes and the next thousand and hopefully in time, millions of listens and a major impact around the world that we can have some connection. And it means the world to me that you listen. It truly does. It takes a tremendous amount of effort to put this show together, to have these amazing guests. And so I have a a massive amount of value for you and your time. And I just wanted to have a moment here and say, thank you. And when you leave the reviews, it means the world to me. I literally go and read all of them. And when you re- read the re- leave the reviews, excuse me, it also helps us have more people listen because that's the way that iTunes works. So if you would, please take a moment, just leave a quick review. It takes 30 seconds means the world to me. I read them all and I know that they impact listenership and somebody right now, the review that you leave could be the reason why they become a part of the unbroken nation and get the value that I hope that you're getting every time that you listen to an episode. So as we head into today's episode, I want to say this as a bit of a preface. I think it's important. My background is a little bit dark. My history, like many trauma survivors is a bit dark. It gets a little grimy down there. This episode is not to be listened to with children around. I will tell you that. Um, and, and as a bit of a, a forewarning to you, there's a lot of honesty in what you're about to listen to about my story, about my journey and about what brought me to where I am today. And so, you know, if you're in the office, put your headphones in, if you're on the bike, you might want to, you know, maybe not be on the bike and, and just pay attention and listen to it. Because it's not about how I've suddenly figured something out that someone doesn't know. It's just simply about this. When you choose to put yourself first, anything is possible. And I believe that for you for people in your life, and for everyone in the world. So, without further ado, my friends, you amazing human beings of the Unbroken Nation,
1: here's my story.
0: Preface Downhill, head-on This crash is coming slowly, move Or watch the slow death of your way of life There's a science of fear It plagues my mind, and it keeps us right here. The science of fear. The temper trap. Child abuse is war. It was in November of 2013 that I decided to change everything that was happening in my life. I was 150 pounds overweight, cheating on my girlfriend, sick with a bacterial infection from drinking too much, smoking almost two packs of cigarettes a day and getting high from the moment I woke up to the moment I went to sleep. I was thriving as a wedding photographer, building an e-commerce clothing brand, and working a third job to cover the expenses of the second business. To say the least, I was a workaholic consumed with a million projects, which meant I didn't have to be alone with myself or my girlfriend. Photography led me down an incredible path, but required all of my energy. I was working with huge companies and getting recognized for my talent in multiple publications. The business part of my life was great, but my personal life was a disaster. In a word, my life was chaos. One morning everything changed. I woke up and my lungs were on fire. My head was pounding, my body was shaking, and I felt the most lost I had ever felt. Feelings of guilt and shame spun around in my head like a police siren after getting extremely intoxicated, and cheating on my partner again. The pain of knowing that I was sabotaging my life again left me feeling like a total loser, which in turn was sabotaging my life. I was in the vortex. The voice inside screamed, You are a f- loser. Look at your life. You are a piece of shit." It was hard to argue with the voice in my head because it was telling the truth. It's impossible to lie to ourselves, and sometimes self talk is right. The vibration in my body screamed, Help! And I didn't know if I was having a panic attack, dying, or both. At 28 years old, it felt like I was on the precipice of my demise. This wasn't the first time that I had taken a can of gasoline, doused my house, and struck a match. I was a regular pyromaniac when it came to burning down the things that I loved myself included. Self-destruction and numbness was more comfortable than feeling the consequences of my actions or love or kindness. That morning, as I was getting ready to head out to another wedding expo, I walked into the bathroom and did something that I had never done before. I went to the mirror and forced myself to look into my own eyes. To this day, I have no idea why I did that. My eyes were sunken, my skin jaundiced, My teeth yellowed, and the round, smushed face in front of me resembled that of someone else. That morning was the first time in my life that I ever really looked at myself, and I was so incredibly embarrassed and ashamed of the person I saw looking back. I was a master of deception and crafting tales, hiding the truth from myself, and orchestrating bulls. But I couldn't hide that the darkness inside was manifesting on the outside, there was nowhere to hide from the shame and embarrassment of being 150 pounds overweight as I struggled to button the size 4XL shirt and wrap size 47 pants around my waist. There was nowhere to hide from the truth that I was drinking and smoking myself to death, that I was running from intimacy, vulnerability, compassion, and that I was terrified of my own potential. Trauma, by definition, is a deeply disturbing or distressing event, and I was forged in its fire. I was a living and breathing, real-life caricature of trauma. The person in that mirror was not the real me, and I knew it. My journey is not dissimilar to that of millions of people around the world. I grew up in chaos. My mother, Donna, was a drug addict and alcoholic. She cut my finger off when I was almost four. She claimed it was a bicycle accident, but my grandmother told me otherwise. I will never know the truth. She was a narcissist, a liar, a thief, and ultimately a victim of the same abuse that my brothers, sister, and I suffered. She was cold, manipulative, callous, cruel, narcissistic, bipolar, manic-depressive, suicidal, and only out for herself. She always put herself before her children she often walked about the house naked and high. It wasn't until I read The Truth by Nil Strauss that I came to understand that our relationship was covertly incestuous due to her often sleeping nude next to me when my stepfather or other men were not around, crowning me the man of the house, rewarding me for being her big man, and often using me as an in-between for her relationships. I learned to become a master manipulator, liar, and thief from watching her coerce her way through life while weaving countless webs of deceit to get what she wanted from other people. I believe that it was her own abuse, which led her down a path of self-destruction and it rubbed off on my siblings and me. Our home was just another example of intergenerational child abuse manifesting itself. Drugs weren't uncommon in my home. I'd always seen my mother popping pills and her weed and alcohol stashes were easy to find. Sometimes there would be more prescription bottles strewn across the floors of our house than food. My mother's addiction lay at the bottom of those little orange vials with white caps. She did have some medical use for them, but more often than not, it was her way of coping with the world. Sadly, she chose those bottles over the well-being of her children, and on more than one occasion, it was me sprinting to the phone to signal for help as she grasped for her life overdosing again and again. When I was 16, I had enough of my mother putting drugs before me and using my brothers and me against each other. With the help of my grandmother, I filed a restraining order against her and my stepfather. The next year of my life would turn out to be the best of childhood. I excelled in sports, had straight A's, and met the first girl that actually liked me back. I can pinpoint the impact of the relationship with my mother and stepfather as a direct corresponding factor in my grades. Teachers often thought that I didn't care or had a learning disability, but the truth is my brain and body were consumed in fear and toxic stress. When I was 18, I made a decision that I felt was the only choice I could make for self-preservation. I told my mother that she and I would never speak again. Earlier that night, I had to physically defend myself from her after she attacked me in my sleep. Until that night, I had never hit her, even in self defense. But her drug-fueled attack was the last straw. I only saw her a couple of times after that night. From 18 until the day she died, I had almost no contact with her. Ultimately, those little round, oval, and triangle-shaped pills would take her life. My father, Michael, who I am named after, abandoned me when I was barely two years old. When people ask me about him, I tell them that I never met him but that is not entirely true. The truth is that I did meet him around my fifth birthday. He picked up my brothers and me from the rundown apartment we lived in on the west side of Indianapolis with my mother and our mutt mixed breed dog, Wolfie. He took us to the shopping mall on the north side of Indy to buy his presents, or at least that is what we were told was going to happen. There were no presents, but we did have a slice of pizza in the food court. After asking to ride the penny horses, He beat us in front of onlookers who did nothing to stop him. I don't know what we did that was so wrong. I will never forget that day. That is my only memory of him, and to carry his name is a burden that I often feel. Part of me has always thought that I would change my name, and the other part of me wants to prove my strength despite him. My stepfather, Sebastian, was hyper-abusive and liked to torture me by flicking me in the head, calling me fat and worthless, and hitting me for asking questions. He once slammed me into the living room closet door when I confused the word Pisces for feces as I tried to read my baby brother's horoscope from the Indy Star Sunday paper. My youngest brother is his only biological son, and the only one that didn't suffer. My stepfather found joy in dragging my brothers and me out of our beds and beating us. He would scream, Keep crying and I'll give you something to cry about. Eventually, I learned to stop crying and accept pain as a way of life. I used to think that my childhood officially ended the night that he beat my brothers and me so hard that I passed out on the kitchen floor after putting wet dishes away in the cabinet. The punishment I endured for simple mistakes of being a child were harsher than most people who commit rape and murder. I could handle the torment and bullying at school because I knew I got to go home. At school, I was an easy target. I smelled like piss, wore hand-me-downs, and had the temperament of a toddler. The abuse and torment I experienced at home would shape the next two decades of my life. The only solace I had were the nights that my stepfather was gone and working hundreds of miles away as an over-the-road truck driver. Hearing his car door close in the driveway announcing his arrival was always the most terrifying moment as a child. I never knew when he was going to be back from a trip. Well into my 20s, the sound of a car door closing would send me sprinting to the window to look out. I knew that the time between that door closing and him getting into the house was enough to stuff a teddy bear into my underwear and to take the brunt of the punishment that I surely was about to receive. At six foot four and over 200 pounds, he packed a punch, and I felt it more than I care to remember. Between being locked in closets, having my head slammed into walls, beaten from mispronouncing words, and constantly walking on eggshells for fear of his wrath, I was in a constant state of fear. There were no days off, and holidays were even worse. I'll never forget the Christmas that he got his new bikes, which were taken away only days later. We were too stupid and retarded to deserve them. My nights were robbed of sleep, and my days were filled with vicious attacks. It was never enough to be hit once or twice. The good beatings never seemed to end until I was on the ground in the fetal position grasping for air. Today, as I stand at 6 feet 4 and 200 pounds, I know my strength, and I can't imagine a more cowardly act than hitting a child or making fun of them for wetting the bed. I wet the bed until my late teens because my nervous system was completely and utterly I know that like my mother, his childhood must have been filled with torment after torment. On some of the summer days during school breaks, we would stay with his mother, Mary, who babysat my brothers and me along with her four foster children. The way she treated those children is on par with the worst horror movies I've seen. She treated her foster children worse than my brothers and I were treated by her son, my stepfather. They were starved, beaten, and embarrassed on a daily basis. Once, after hiding a corn muffin in her panties to eat later in the day, one of the foster girls was dragged to the garage by her hair, stripped naked, beaten, and forced to eat the muffin off the oil-soaked floor in front of every child in that house. This was so common that I wasn't shocked. I've encountered so many terrible and misguided people, but she was evil in ways that I didn't know a person could be. After being evicted again, we moved into Mary's house. It was like living in the walls, the smells, and the feeling of hearing the screams of those tortured foster children haunted me every night. It was a real-life haunted house, and for years, I was forced to call it home. All of my experiences have taught me that child abuse is not sporadic, and I would argue that abuse is a learned behavior repeated generationally, time and again. I read somewhere recently that hurt people hurt people. It only makes sense to me that being a practitioner of abuse Is embedded in the abused. I grew up in the Mormon Church. I grew up in the Mormon Church, and since we were often homeless or deeply impoverished, the church parishioners would take us into their homes and offer us tithes to cover electric and water bills. It was during this time that I was molested by one of the ward's mothers. When I shared this with my mother, she told me that I wasn't allowed to say a word. A few years later, when I mentioned it again, she told me that it didn't happen and that I was a liar. I carried the shame of that experience for decades. I saw the worst parts of the church and witnessed other children being hurt and abused when my brothers and I would stay with them. When my mother was gone on a binge and my stepfather out of town, I would find myself staying with different families from the Brownsburg ward of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Over multiple years, I stayed with upwards of 30 different families, and much like ours, What happened behind closed doors was often hidden by Sunday smiles and pitch-ins. By the time I was 11, I had been stripped entirely of my childhood. Between the beatings, belittlement, molestation, bedwetting, shame, tattered clothes, foodless nights, bullying, and homelessness, I was ready to kill myself. Around this time, my baby brother went with his father, my stepfather, and he and my mother finally divorced. The second youngest of us boys went into the care of the state after threatening to kill himself. He was only eight. My sister lived with her father and escaped most of these experiences. Our family was anything but healthy and functional. And it hurt to know of all the dysfunctional families, we were the worst. When I was 12, my vehemently racist grandmother, Gladys, adopted my next youngest brother and me. Racism was a daily part of life living with my grandmother. It was not uncommon for her to scream spick, jap, nigger, coon, jew, beaner, and a litany of other diatribes out the car window or under her breath at the grocery store. It wasn't until my last few years of high school that the direction of her racism changed and began to directly impact my brothers and me. By the time I was a senior in high school, she would often say, I guess you want to go to prison with those nigger friends of yours. And... I didn't raise you to be another one of these black bums. This would be the downfall of our relationship and one of the major reasons that I removed myself from her in the same way I had my mother. Looking back and knowing that a copy of Adolf Hitler's autobiography and manifesto, Mein Kampf, was in the living room, I was not surprised by her racism. I will forever be thankful to my grandma for taking me in, however, Being a biracial teen in a racist household in an almost all-black neighborhood led to a full-on identity crisis in high school that would take me another 10 years to sort out. High school was certainly no walk in the park. While I did well in sports, the dog-eat-dog, prison-like environment at my school, one of the worst in America, drove me to stay intoxicated as often as possible. In fact, Northwest High School had such a deplorable graduation and pass rate that it was listed as a dropout factory in a study at Johns Hopkins. It has since been shut down due to budget deficits and declining enrollment. In high school, I was deep into using and selling drugs, breaking into houses and cars, committing robberies, skipping, getting into fights and hurting people, and honing my skills as a con artist. In essence, I was a full-on product of my environment. I started drinking daily before I graduated, and the sad truth is that a lot of us did. I was on a one-way path to being kicked out of school, but there were two teachers who, without question, impacted the direction of my life. Mr. Hollingsworth was the only man in my life that instilled any sense of belief in me. He made me feel valued and believed in my talent on the wrestling mat and in school. He was the only person to ever recognize that something bad had happened to me and the only person to tell me that I was going to do something important with my life. His support will never be lost on me, and I am forever grateful. My life seemed to be headed towards total collapse, but by sheer luck, I had another amazing teacher who taught me the most important lesson I have ever learned. Mr. Brown was the kind of teacher that had seen everything, and I'm sure I'm not the first or last kid to try to win him over in an effort to get out of showing up. In the last semester of my senior year, he failed me for not showing up to class, and I was forced to attend summer school while my friends were beginning their first season of real freedom. I begged him to pass me. I literally cried and begged him. I punched the lockers and screamed, but he wasn't phased. My world was ripped upside down as I had become the biggest loser in school. When my friends found out, they ostracized me. I was now the laughing stock of a school of laughing stocks. What they didn't know and what I hadn't yet realized is that trauma was guiding every action in my life. What Mr. Brown did was not only courageous, but to this day, the single most important thing that anyone has done for me. What he did was teach me that I can't get by in life on my charm and good looks. He taught me that if I want something, I have to work for it. After not being able to get into the military because of my medical history, I spent the next couple of years getting chasing girls, working in restaurants, and partying until 6 a.m. I had no regard for my own well-being or those around me and constantly put myself and others at risk as I rode the spiral of sex, drugs, and booze, like I was Tommy Lee of Motley Crue. In full disclosure, Tommy Lee was my idol as a kid. I knew that I was destined for something outside of homelessness and abuse, but I didn't know how to get there except through money and power. I made a decision that I would do whatever it took to legally make a six-figure income by the time I was 21. I assumed that the way out of poverty and the insanity of my youth was money, so I worked my off until ultimately finding success in corporate America at one of the largest insurance companies in the country. At 21 years old, I was making more money legally than anyone I knew, but the income only exacerbated the stirrings of darkness awaiting deep within me. Eventually. I would walk away from that six-figure lifestyle to chase my dream of becoming a professional photographer. Pursuing my dream of photography didn't change the fact that the demons were encircling me and would soon engulf my soul. On my 26th birthday, I put a gun in my mouth as my girlfriend pounded on the bathroom door, begging me not to kill myself. I will never forget the taste of the cold metal against my tongue. I pulled the trigger, but the pin didn't strike the bullet casing. A failure to fire. I had guns in my life since I was a child, and I will never understand why that round malfunctioned. Two days later, I went to the firing range and the same gun worked like new. Fast forward three years. My photography and e-commerce businesses were booming, but everything else around me was in shambles. My relationships were a total lie because I was addicted to sex, porn, and was surrounded by toxic people who encouraged me to continue down the path I was on instead of getting my shit together. Being young with money opens the world to the best and worst possibilities, and I chose to swim in a pool filled with alcohol and drugs. I was drinking and getting stoned every day. I was addicted to feeling numb, and I only cared about getting f- I sought validation from every external source I could find, I was in the worst shape of my life, weighing in at over 340 pounds. In addition to being morbidly obese, I was smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. I was depressed, anxious, having panic attacks, and suicidal thoughts. I felt like complete shit. I couldn't face the cold hard truth that I needed to stop making excuses and take my life back. After another drug and alcohol fueled night, I woke up hating myself. I hated who I was and who I had become. As a child, I promised myself that I would be better than the people who brought me into the world. I'd broken that promise to myself. I decided in a single moment that everything had to change. This was my mirror moment. That was seven years ago. There's a lot to be said about the impact of our past and the way that it shapes us into the people we are and will become. But more often than not, it's a crutch and an excuse. I no longer seek validation for my existence through external sources and have found a real and true love for myself. I'm no longer playing the victim. I have transformed my body and my mind through hard work, dedication, persistence, and the unwavering belief that I can do anything. One of the hardest truths that I had to admit to myself was that vicious and undeserved trauma happened to me again and again. I had to accept that I had survived some of the most toxic environments imaginable and that I lost my way because I was so dissociated from the truth. They say that the truth will set you free and I agree with that to an extent. The part that they leave out is that you have to acknowledge and feel the truth if you want to be released from its grasp. Today, I educate people around the world on the effects of trauma and how to get out of the vortex, take their lives back, and become the person that they know they are capable of being. The most critical piece of being is taking the first steps towards healing. When I look back at that moment in the mirror, I am reminded of the promise I made to myself. I promised myself to stop making excuses. I would do anything to get healthy, including leaving everything behind to start over from scratch. It's not that I was running from who I was, I was running towards who I wanted to be. What I didn't know was that the road to recovery and healing would be more daunting and confusing than the actual trauma itself. Surprisingly, the process of discovering who I am was more complicated than being the person that the world wanted me to be. The day everything changed, I acknowledged that I was responsible for creating the Michael I saw staring back at me. The Michael that stands in front of me today is the same. But with one huge difference. Today, I love myself. I love my strength, courage, personality, body, heart, and mind. I had to walk over the fiery hot coals and smoking ashes of the flames that once engulfed me because that was the only way I could create who I am today. When I look in the mirror now, the welling police sirens have turned into a powerful yet gentle whisper of a breeze that tells me. You are strong. You are capable. You are loved. It is through your story that others will find their light. It is through your power that change will happen. Go forward without fear, because today could be the best day of your life. Trauma doesn't give a about where you live, what color your skin is, how much money you have, or your status in society. As many as 70% of adults may be survivors of trauma. My mission is to guide survivors of trauma by connecting them with the warriors that they genuinely are. The battle against trauma is one that must be faced together, and it's easier to do it with a team by your side. Society may have once labeled me as an outcast, a loser, a drunk, a stoner, a liar, a cheater, and a thief, and those labels were all true. However, the one label I have always rejected was being called broken. I never felt broken, but I longed for someone to show up and guide me through the healing process. They never came. I decided to write this book because it is what I needed when I started my journey. I hope that you find it to be the same. I am here for you. We are in this together. We are not alone. We are the unbroken. Thank you so much for listening to Think Unbroken
1: Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.
0: Hey, my friends, we will be right back to the show, but I have a question for you. Are you struggling with the impact of childhood trauma? Well, know that you're not alone. I'm here to let you know that I'm starting a brand new weekly coaching group that includes a year of life coaching, accountability, support, habit and goal setting, and more. I'm starting a waitlist for the group right now, and I'm only taking a handful of people. And I'll let you know that through this personalized coaching, we'll work together to help you understand how your childhood trauma has shaped your beliefs, behaviors, emotions, and will help you create a roadmap for healing and growth. Right now, you can schedule an absolutely free coaching session with me and get put on the waitlist if you go to thinkunbroken.com. My friends, it's your time to turn your trauma into triumph breakdowns into breakthroughs, and become the hero of your own story. And I'm here to support you in doing that. Just go to thinkunbroken.com to register for a free coaching call with me and to get put on the wait list for the brand new weekly coaching program.